Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class of prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us. Uh, let us uh, understand the, the mysteries and the truths that you have uh, uh, put into your word for us to study today. Uh, hope our hearts be aligned with you and make us more effective in this world at this time in history that the final message about you can be, can be seen and known and, and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. In class today and next week, the lesson is for today, lesson 11, the seal of God and mark of the beast part one. And so what do you think next week is? <laughs> seal of God, mark of the beast part two. Okay. And uh, we actually did a lesson, I think it was lesson eight, where we went into great length on the seal of God and the mark of the beast, if you remember, a very long lesson. And much of that material, actually, in these next two weeks is not exclusively about that. They, they mention it. But what these next two weeks is actually about in great detail are the beasts of Revelation 13 and 17. And so I'm going to do something different the next two weeks. Some of you may really love it. Some of you may be a little distraught by it. Because the notes for the next two weeks come out of... Our magazine, Unmasking the Beast, Revelation 13 and 17, because that's what the content of the next two weeks' lessons are about. And if you read the lessons and then read this, you'll see this this covers that material. So today, I'm going to, and next week, we're going to have some PowerPoint presentation. This is a draft PowerPoint, unedited. And what I'm going to ask for you, since you're in this audience, is uh, this is interactive. So during this presentation... Raise your hand. Ask questions. I want that. If you're watching online, as you're watching this, I'm asking as a group to give feedback and say, hey, that didn't flow well there. I think it needs some adjustment uh, because it's, this presentation is, I've been working on for months, but I still think it's in a rough format a little bit. And like, kind of like when we have a class discussion, it's not always organized in the same smooth way. So if you have ideas that you think it would have helped me if you would have clarified this at this point before I finally do a, and we're going to do a seminar at some point on this, and then we'll make these slides available once they're edited and finally proofed. But you guys can have some input in helping me develop this at this time. That's, that's what we're going to try and do, okay? So, Dean, can we put my slides up? And the lesson covers the same material in a slightly different order than I will. We'll see how far we get today, and we'll finish it out next week, okay? So, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And because the slides are up here, don't be intimidated. If you have questions as we go along, ask your questions. In a regular kind of presentation, you kind of wait till the end, but I want this to be more interactive here. The book of Revelation is the book of revelation, not concealment. It's not the book of mysticism or of secrecy or of hiding reality. It's the book of revealing, uncovering, disclosing, or enlightening. Blessed is the one who reads the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So there's a blessing for us to comprehend and understand this. But understand the primary purpose of prophecy. In my understanding, the primary purpose is to increase our faith in God, not give us a crystal ball into the future. What does that mean? Once history unfolds, the prophecy becomes clear. And we can know that while we cannot see into the future, God clearly saw into the future. And so we look back, for instance, the prophecies of the multi-metal man and the beasts of, in, in Daniel 7, and we see that the kingdoms that were coming, uh, we can see very clearly that God knew what was coming. And we now know clearly what those things meant because how history has unfolded. Because of that, our interpretations of future events 
will always remain open to revision as history unfolds. We are not going to be dogmatic and say, this is how it will happen in the future. We will do our best to understand what may be happening, okay? But we'll be open to, to reinterpret the symbolism as history unfolds. So much of Revelation is written in symbol, which is a form of code. In order to understand it, we have to decode it. So we're going to do a lot of decoding here. The rules of our interpretation are decoding. If one part of the passage is a symbol or symbolic, then the rest is symbolic unless clear. Evidence in the text is given for it to be taken literal. The Bible will be used to interpret itself before any other external sources are used. Revelation's theme, this is a theme, the theme of Scripture, the conflict between Christ and Satan. That's its theme. The conflict between Christ and Satan is not a physical war. God, the creator, could have destroyed a created being like this. It's not a physical war. It's not over might and power. It's a war of ideas, methods, principles, the purpose of winning hearts and minds to loyalty and transforming or changing intelligent beings to be like Christ or like Satan in the way they function and the character they have. God's character of love never changes. Everybody agree with that? Therefore, interpretations will never put God in a representation of being other than his character of love. If we interpret something that makes God seem other than love, then we are interpreting it incorrectly. And God's law of love never changes. Therefore, interpretations will always harmonize with how his design law of love functions. Okay, with that, the first piece of Revelation. Yes? Was it written in code because we needed to go through the process of decoding? Why? You're saying it's clear. It sounds mysterious to me. It's always been mysterious to me. It doesn't seem clear, but it seems purposeful that it was written that way. Sure, it was written in code on purpose. It was given as a vision in symbols that was recorded in this way. And so it was written in code for a variety of reasons. Um, when, when you want to understand mathematics and mathematical realities, is the best way to get the answer key and memorize an answer key or to have problems that require you to wrestle out and figure the answer? Yeah. Which one helps you learn math better? So these problems, and, the, and, 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 and so a math book will give you problems. The math book will also give you the keys, not the answer keys, but the rules or the keys for interpreting and working the problem. Isn't that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what the Bible does. It's given us problems, and it's given us the keys to decode and understand the problem that we can then, in our thinking and understanding, be brought out of a worldly way into a spiritual or, or heavenly way of understanding reality and what's going on. And it changes us. This process, this is how we get changed. But in the mathematical way, it's usually just one answer of interpretation. In this way, there's so many different interpretations of these texts. In the mathematical way, there's actually lots of answers. When you have a math problem, you send out an exam to a bunch of students, you'll get a lot of different answers back. There's only one correct answer. Only one correct And in Scripture, there's only one correct answer. There may be a lot of students out there writing a lot of answers, but there's only ultimately one correct answer. One of those. According to us. Okay. Um, yep. Everybody thinks they have the right answer in this. Right, but yes, when we get to heaven, 
okay? And so, and so salvation isn't, isn't found in the right, correct, fact, data answer. It's found in the right, correct, heart alignment with God that we have his living law of love working in us. So, um, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. He had 10 horns and seven heads with 10 crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. So beasts in scripture are used to represent powers. These powers can be nations, can be nations, just like we've always done in human history. The bald eagle represents the United States. The bear represents Russia. And in scripture, it tells us itself, the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise out of the earth. And the lion represented Babylon, and bear Medo-Persia, and leopard Greece, and the grotesque beast represented Rome. But beasts in scripture, while they can represent powers and nations, can also represent people or individuals, just like we've done in human history. Richard, anybody heard of Richard the Lionheart? Yes. The lion he used to represent him and his uh, crest. And Jesus is described in Scripture as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the Lamb is an animal, a beast, if you will, used to represent Jesus. Who does the dragon represent? It doesn't leave us a, a confusion. The Scripture tells us clearly the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent. There's another animal or beast. So Satan is represented by a dragon. He's also represented by a serpent, okay? called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. In, in scripture, ferocious beasts, think about, think about the impact. You're out there anywhere in the world. You're on the plains of Africa. You come around and there's a full-grown lion right in front of you. Or in, in North America, you come around the, the Smoky Mountains and there's a full-grown bear right in front of you. What is the reaction you have to these beasts? Ferocious beasts in scripture represent powers that rule by force and incite fear. Earthly governments rule by imposed law, power, might, force, coercion, threat, intimidation, inflicted consequences, punishment, harms, and they make you afraid. How many of you are afraid of what your government will do to you if you disobey their laws? It's fear. This is why they're a beast. Jesus, though, rules by truth, love, and freedom, and thus is represented as a gentle lamb. There's a contrast. There's a reason that these symbols are used. Seas, remember the beast comes up out of the sea. The Bible tells us explicitly what's the sea represent. So beasts represent powers, either nations or people. Sea represents the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, languages. In other words, have you ever heard of a, a sea of people? And you look at this picture, it looks like a, a moving sea, like the waves and stuff. And so it's an imagery saying a, a sea of people, it's a populated places. So a beast or a kingdom arising out of the sea would be a nation rising or an individual rising with the support and the power of the people in a populated place. Horns in scripture, because this beast, it's a beast, it's an, but it had 10 horns. Horns are used to attack and defend. And horns represent power. Horns can represent godly power. This is Psalms 18.2. The Lord is my rock my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in, wh- in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And the footnote of this text reads, a horn here symbolizes strength. 
<clears throat> Horn can also, though, represent evil power. <clears throat> to the arrogant, I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak with outstretched necks. I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. So horns represent power, either godly power or evil power. Horns can also represent people. Jesus, if you remember in in Luke 1.69, is called the horn of our salvation. And if you remember the shaggy goat that had a big horn that was broken into four, in the prophecy in Daniel 8, the big horn represented Alexander the Great. The Bible tells us specifically, if you go and read Daniel 8, that the shaggy goat represents Greece, and the big horn represents its first ruler, which was Alexander the Great. So horns on the beast represent the powers used by the beast. Number 10 is number, but there's 10 horns, seven heads. What do the numbers 10 and 7 represent? We're still decoding. We're still decoding. 10 in Scripture represents completion of earthly things. So there are 10 virgins in the parable, and the 10 virgins represent the worldwide church. Five wise, five foolish. The wheat and the tares grow up in the church together, right? Okay, so this is the worldwide church represented in the earthly completion, the complete whole church in this parable. How about the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments were given to the fallen, sinful human race and are a completion of God's law codified for the fallen, sinful human race. The ten toes in the multi-metal image, if you remember the multi-metal image, Babylon, um, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the clay feet, legs, and then a rock cut out without hands comes and destroys it at the ten toes. The ten toes represent the global powers, uh, the entire powers of the whole world when Christ sets up his kingdom, which is set up, which is represented by the rock, not cut out with human hands. Seven represents completion of spiritual things, not earthly things, spiritual things, either holy or unholy. Spiritually holy or unholy, seven, and it's the completion of seven days of creation. God completed his creation holy process in seven days, the seventh-day Sabbath. The seven lampstands in the sanctuary. The seven horns and eyes on the lamb of Revelation 5, and we'll talk and unpack those specifically in just a moment. But also the seven abominations in Proverbs or the seven unclean spirits that Jesus talked about coming back in, if you remember, cast one out and seven more come back. This is the complete corruption, of sp- uh, spiritual corruption would be represented by seven unclean spirits. So the seven horns and seven eyes of the lamb. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes. Remember, the beast has ten horns and seven heads. This is seven horns and seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. So the lamb, who's the lamb? So this is Jesus represented here of having seven horns and seven eyes. What do the seven horns represent? They represent, horns represent what? So this is Jesus, and he's going to wield seven distinct powers of the Godhead. Does the Bible tell us what those seven powers are? 
first power is the power of creation. He's the creator. And these seven powers separate God from all the false gods. So these are the seven powers. Seven, one. So creation, two, truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. God is the source of all truth. Satan has no truth on his side. The power of truth. The spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And the third power is the power of love. The fourth, resurrection power. You can also call this the power of life. The power, Jesus says he holds the keys to the grave in Hades. Okay, so he has the power over, over resurrection and the power of life, which is different than just creating. The power to forgive and to save from sin. You remember he said, so that you might know that I have the power on earth to forgive sins. Pick up your bed and walk, he said to the paralytic man. The power that sustains and holds all things together. You know your scriptures where it says all things are created by him and all things are sustained by him and hold together by him. So these are the sustaining power, the constant energy of God holding his universe and sustaining the laws and how it functions. And the last is the power over time. Foreknowledge. God can see through. He's not restricted in time. He, he doesn't exist in linear time like we do. He, he controls and governs time. He stopped the sun. Yes. I've never heard these seven growing up. I'm not surprised. I haven't either. <laughs> no, and aren't there going to be more? Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that looks encompassing, but is that not limiting? So can you think of a power that doesn't fall in these friends? You might say, four, you might say knowledge. Well, that falls in both time and truth. Yeah. Recreation. That would be under resurrection power. So, so these are the seven powers that Scripture describes. They all, I can't think of a power that doesn't fall here. But if you can think of one, share it with me. Yeah. So you haven't heard these seven powers put together, but I, I suspect you've heard that God is the creator, and he has creation power, that he has the power over the grave and death, and he has resurrection power, that he has the power to forgive sins. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard that he has the power of truth and the power of love? Okay, which is gospel power, by the way, the good news power. Okay, Paul talks about the power of the gospel, which is the truth and love power. Okay, have you ever heard that he has foreknowledge and the power over time? Okay, have you ever heard that he has power to sustain all reality and all held together by him? So you've heard all these powers, you just never heard them put together. What does traditional Adventism say these seven horns are? I have not heard an interpretation of the seven horns. Has anybody heard an interpretation of the seven horns before? No, it's not interpreted as far as I know. Yep. So seven eyes equal the seven spirits. Now, what are, what are the eyes symbolic of in Scripture? Eyes are the ability to see, discern, and have wisdom. And so those without spiritual discernment are called, by Jesus himself, blind guides. They don't have it. And we are to pray to receive eye salve from the Holy Spirit, that we can have vision discernment, okay? And so the Lamb of God wields the seven powers of God with the wisdom, discernment, and, and the spiritual eyesight of the infinite God. And what are those seven spirits? The Bible doesn't actually leave us in, in you know, confusion about this one. It tells us explicitly in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, who is that speaking of? Jesus. This is clearly Jesus. And who's the lamb in Revelation? Jesus. So this is the same person, okay? And the lamb has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits, it tells us. And here's the seven spirits. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding and of counsel and of power and of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. 
So he uses the, the Holy Spirit, which came upon him as the dove. And then you notice in his life, he used the spirit of wisdom and understanding and of counsel as he counseled and gave direction and power and knowledge and fear of Lord, which is all or reverence for his own father. The ten horns on the beast represent the total global beastly powers, both in their earthly governments, but also in the ten types of power the systems wield. The ten types. What are the ten types of power that are Satan's powers according to scriptures? Lies, number one. He's the father of lies. It's opposite to the truth. So, so the, ten, the beastly system will not use truth. It will use lies. Satan is the father of lies. Imposed laws. Made up rules. And we're going to come back and spend more time on this when we get down into some more details on what this beast does and how it wages war. But after it's imposed laws... Who is called the accuser of the brethren? So they make laws, make up rules, not design laws. They make up rules. Say, God creates reality. We make up rules. And then once we make up rules, we monitor and accuse people of rule breaking. And then we use external power to arrest and prosecute people for rule breaking. Satan is the accuser and he's the prosecutor. He's the ones that bring charges. And then judicial power. This is part of the ten. These are part of the ten powers used by the beast. You might say, "Well, wait a minute. Isn't, doesn't God use judicial power?" No, He does not. God uses the truth. What's the difference between judicial power? See, a judge, judicial power, looks at external evidences of various kinds and makes an external decision over another person. God looks at the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God uses the truth of what actually is. And so the judgment that Christ gave in his parable was he separates the sheep from the goats. Does the judge separating sheep from goats, does his judgment or judicial action cause a sheep to be a sheep and a goat to be a goat? No, guilt and innocence is not determined by God's findings, whereas human law determines guilt or innocence. This is an external imposition. God does not use this method. This is human. This is the beastly method. God simply diagnoses what is. Um, And he says in the end, let him who is righteous be righteous still. Let him who is filthy be filthy still. That's the way it is. And we are either one to trust, have our hearts set right with God, and are found to be in Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Thus, God diagnoses us to be reborn. Or we have rejected Christ, and we've hardened our hearts in sin, and God says, let him who is filthy still be filthy. And it is what it is. So he uses the truth. He doesn't use a judicial, artificial judgment to declare it to be one way or the other. Economics. This is all artificial. Understand the purpose of human economics. Think about your, your money. That's artificially defined with an artificial value that is manipulated by selfish people to exploit from the masses to make a few wealthy. Tax laws, all these types of things. God's economy doesn't work that way. Yes? I was just wondering, is there anything gained by playing the stock market? 
I mean, or is it just... Totally, totally different question. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is about the 10, 10 powers. But get, playing the stock market is part of the economic manipulation that people do to exploit and take advantage of people. It's a form of gambling in certain ways. It also can be um, used... You, I don't know if you know. I don't know much about it. But I know you can, you can buy sell short or whatever it is. In other words, you can place a bet that a particular stock in this period of time, two weeks or whatever, will lose value. And if the stock loses value in that period of time, you make money. That's called selling short. Okay? If it doesn't, then you lose whatever money you have put down on that. It's like a bet. It's gambling in a certain way. But people who are in power and influence can, through media propaganda cause a company to lose value. Imagine if you would have sold Bud short, sold sold Anheuser-Busch stock short, and then made a little can with a trans person on it. Okay, you did that. You would would have actually made billions of dollars selling that stock short. Not producing anything, not making anything. So that's, that's, that's all artificial. It's all made up, okay? That's how, and God's, God's economy doesn't work that way. You see, God's economy is a perfect design law economy. If you go out and you are in a relaxing afternoon, breathing in a, sunny, in a, in a shady place, you get just the oxygen you need, just, to, just the, the amount that you need your body. But if you go exercise really hard and you, and you burn a whole lot more calories and you breathe a lot faster you get to use a lot more oxygen. You get just the oxygen you need. It still works. So, so what, what you need is given to you exactly based on the design laws of how reality functions. War. God is not the author of war. Now, there was war in heaven, but God didn't instigate it. It was instigated by the enemy. Death. You know Satan holds the power of death? Jesus holds the power to the grave and, 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 and uh, Hades, but it says in Hebrews 2.14 that Christ took upon himself human flesh, that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. His power are all the things he does to get us to separate ourselves from God. Lies and all the manipulations that he does. And we separate from God because John 17.3, this is life eternal, they might know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ is now sent. Knowing God is eternal life. So if he gets us to break that intimate knowledge with God, then we don't have life. And that's his power, power of death. Now, I put on here education, but I put on here slash indoctrination. There is a true education that God does. But Satan takes that label and replaces it with indoctrination. So, yes, God uses education. We, uh, Adam and Eve were, were being educated in a godly way in Eden, okay, by God. And we will have education by God. There's a godly education. But that terminology is co-opted by the beast, and under the label of education, you get indoctrination, which is not God, which is programming, which is propaganda information. See what's happening in our schools in many places in America right now? There is huge indoctrination in certain philosophies and godless theories. You start back with the theory of evolution. That is not education. That's indoctrination. Under the label of education. And, it, and, and, and once godlessness started being taught as an assumed truth, 
Notice what's come in the wake in our public schools and what we're teaching today. There's no such thing as even a man or a woman. No. It's indoctrination. Ownership. The scripture's very clear. God owns everything, and we are his stewards. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Everything is mine. And we are his stewards. But human governments create all these laws on ownership. You might own a piece of property, but you don't have the mineral rights. <laughs> right? Yeah. You might not have grazing rights. You might have water rights on the water that's running through your property. This is all artificial made-up stuff. God owns everything. We are his stewards, and we're to manage it in a godly way. And then fear. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. And you will notice that all of the other nine powers are designed and manipulated by the beastly powers to incite fear. That's what they're for. They'll be used in some way to make you afraid so that you can be controlled. The seven heads with blasphemy names. There are seven heads. And so remember, the beast had seven heads and ten horns. We just went through the ten horn powers, and the beastly systems of this world use all those ten. We'll come back to that again. But it also had seven heads. And the Bible tells us elsewhere that the seven heads are also seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. This was written by John around 95, 96 AD. So the seven heads with blasphemous names. There are seven hills in Scripture. If you let Scripture define the meaning of that, you will find the high places or hills in Scripture are places of worship. Zion was called my holy hill. And in the Old Testament, they were constantly being reprimanded for going up into the hills to worship the false gods. So the seven high places or hills are seven false places of worship, seven false systems of worship. The head is where one thinks and reasons and worships and determines what is best. That's what we do in the head. The heads, therefore, once the belief systems are formed, direct the use of the beast in how they use the ten horns powers. And so if you look through history, as we look at these, you will find that the governmental powers will be used by people who have certain belief systems to advance their belief systems. Because this is the, and there's, and there's seven false systems. So, the, so five have fallen. In AD 96, when John wrote this, five have, the angel says, five of them have already proven to be false or fallen. One of them is right now, but it's going to fall. And then one will come a short time later, will come later and only last a short time. So the five fallen systems, paganism in all of its form, by the, when John was writing, it's already proven to be false. In all the forms of paganism, the asterisks, the molechs, the bales, the, the, all the false pagan systems of religion that are recorded in scripture, all proven to be false. What happened with the 10 plagues of Egypt, showing all those gods they worship, false. Paganism, proven false. Godlessness, people who say, oh, there's no God. False system, a belief. Eastern mysticism, this is not worshiping a false god like the sun god. This is worshiping either ancestors or just a, the energies of the universe. This is this empty Eastern mystical belief system, typically often related to energy and ancestor worship. Islam. Somebody said, wait a second, hold, this is 96 AD. Muhammad wasn't for about 500 more years. Muhammad was the last of the prophets, not the first. And he did not 
create the religion of Islam. He codified or organized it. And Islam traces its roots all the way back to Ishmael and the belief that the promises given to Abraham come down the line of Ishmael, not down the line of Isaac. And so this is the whole belief system of Islam that comes down through history, believing that the promises are fulfilled through Isaac's descendants. Excuse me, Ishmael's descendants, not, not, not Isaac's. Judaism. Was it true? But Jesus said right at his crucifixion weekend about Judaism, your house is left to you desolate. When they rejected Christ, they lost their mission. And it was transferred over to those who accepted Christ and would carry the gospel forward. So five of them, by the time John's writing, had already proven false. One of them currently existed. That was the new emerging Christianity, which eventually became Romanism. And one's going to come for a short time before Christ returns, and that's the false Protestantism. So the beast with seven heads and ten horns is a chameleon. It's a composite representation of the various false systems of the world that Satan uses to oppose God and God's true church. Let let that sink for a minute. I'm going to show you. That's why it has so many different shapes and different elements to it. So many different heads and horns and so forth. The different heads direct the various ten-horn powers, the state powers, to oppose God and persecute the saints at different times and at different places through human history. In the Dark Ages, in Europe, the papal head directed the ten-horn powers to persecute the saints. In communist lands today, it's the godless head that uses those same ten powers to persecute the saints today. In Iran, the Islamic head is directing those same ten horn powers to persecute the saints. In ancient Africa and ancient America, it was the pagan heads that were opposing the gospel. If these are still being practiced today, how are they already fallen? So, so the systems are fallen in that they're false and untrue. Okay. Yeah. Not that they're not being utilized. Okay. Yeah. What about the wounded head then? There are seven heads. I've shown you the seven false systems. I've shown you how that beast represents the conglomeration of all Satan's powers worldwide opposing the gospel. There's one head, though, that's wounded. How do we figure that? One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound has been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. In order to identify this, you have to understand the theme of Scripture. What is the theme and focus of Scripture? There was war in heaven over God's trustworthiness. That war spread to earth. Adam and Eve were deceived by temptation and became infected with sin. The human race became terminal. We are born in this terminal state. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We are dead in our trespass and sin. We need remedy from our creator. That's our condition after Adam and Eve sinned. Once Adam and Eve sinned, no human being could be saved without Jesus. Yes or no? Jesus is required for salvation after Adam and Eve sinned. Yes or no? And so right in, Gen- right in Eden, before they're cast out of the garden, in Genesis 3.15, right there God promises that the Messiah is coming. The seed of the woman is coming to crush the serpent's head. The entire Old Testament narrative, its focus is on bringing the Messiah. That's its purpose. That's the whole storyline. And that's why we focus on Abraham's descendants through Isaac and Jacob, not through Ishmael and not through Esau, because Messiah was not coming through those branches of Abraham's family. 
Messiah was coming through Isaac and Jacob. And eventually, 10 tribes are lost, and we narrow it all the way down to Judah because the Bible tells us way back that it is the line of the tribe of Judah. It's through Judah the Messiah is coming. And that's where we focus. It's also why we don't focus on the Chinese or the American Indians. Not because God doesn't love them. He loves them just as much as every other human being. It's because it was through this branch of the human family that the promise of Genesis 3.15 and the purpose of Scripture is to reveal to us the reality of God's existence, his government, the problem of sin, and God's solution for it, which is Jesus Christ. And that's why the Scripture focuses where it does. So this is the theme. Everybody with me? The New Testament, after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and Bible prophecies that extend past the New Testament, focus on those who carry the gospel message forward. It's the same theme. There it was focusing on bringing Jesus. After Jesus' successful mission, the, the, the focus or the, or the spotlight of Scripture is on where the gospel, the message of Jesus is being carried. It's still the great controversy focus. Everybody with me? So Revelation 13 focuses our attention on those who carry the gospel forward and those most vicious in trying to stop it. That's the focus of Revelation 13. So theme and focus of Old Testament Jacob's descendants, Satan attacks with Babylon. He attacks with Medo-Persia. He attacks with Greece. He attacks with Rome. Did did that all happen to to Abraham's descendants through Jacob? History. Yes, that's history. That's what happened. Satan is trying to destroy the avenue, okay? After Christ's victory, Christians and Satan attacks with with the beast that contains elements similar to those four beasts that attacked historic Israel. The difference, Old Testament, the Jewish people were attacked both spiritually and physically in both types of warfare, and the, uh, the Christians were attacked spiritually and physically. Spiritual warfare was used to harden hearts in the Old Testament times. Spiritual warfare was used to harden hearts of the Christians. Physical warfare to destroy the avenue through who Messiah was. He was trying to kill the people so they couldn't have kids and so they'd be eradicated and you couldn't have a Messiah. Physical warfare against the Christians was to destroy the messengers who remain loyal, so the message would be destroyed. The goal of the Old Testament assaults were to stop Messiah from coming. The goal of the war after Christ was to stop the gospel from spreading. Can you all see the war? Yeah. Babylon and Persia. So how, the, how, how are these things similar? How is the, you see the same thing happening. Why you see the elements in the first beast, you see the, the elements of the leopard and the bear and the lion in this first beast and the grotesque beast, they're all kind of mingled together. Uh, Babylon and Persia took the people literally captive. The beast of this beast imprisoned the saints and took them actually captive. Many of them were held in prisons as well. Greece defiled the temple. Remember, Antiochus goes in, offers pig, uh, a pig on the, on the altar at the temple. He defiles the temple. Greece defiles the, the literal temple. The beast defiles the spirit temple with its lies about God. How, uh, Rome destroyed the temple. In AD, uh, ultimately, Rome destroys the temple. And the beast destroys the, temple of, the spirit temple of all those who believe its lies and are marked in their forehead and their hand. Receive its mark. So which head is leading the beast of Revelation 13, 1? There's seven heads, seven false systems. 
which head leads the beast during the 42 months of its power. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. So let's look at this wounded head. One of the seven heads receives a wound. This one of the seven heads will wield power, will, will, will wield the ten powers of the beast. Will speak arrogantly or proudly. Will blaspheme. Will conglo- uh, a conglomerate power that is similar to the beast of Revelation 7. Will dominate for 42 months, 42 prophetic months. Will receive a wound that appears to be deadly, but from which it will heal. We have seven possibilities for this wounded head. Paganism, godlessness, Eastern mysticism, Islam, Judaism, Roman papal Christianity, false Protestant Christianity. We have seven possible heads. What, uh, but the thematic focus of Scripture is Old Testament, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, down through Judah, and the New Testament, those who carry the gospel forward. So the thematic per, uh, focus of Scripture would cause us to first look at the two Christian alternatives, because there's one carrying the gospel forward. So this, this false head, that's where the Bible focuses. So our first question will be, do either papal... Christianity or false Protestant Christianity um, meet the other identifiers listed there. And so let's look at that. Wield the 10 powers. Did the Roman church during the dark ages wield these 10 powers? Every one of them. I won't go through them. I don't have time to go through them because we're already (laughs) running low on time here this morning. But yes, every one of these powers were used by the Roman church in the dark ages. What about arrogant and blasphemes? Arrogance and blasphemy. Arrogance, according to the dictionary, means offensive display of superiority or self-importance, overbearing pride. And blasphemy, the crime of assuming to oneself the rights and qualities of God. These are, these are two definitions of these words. Uh, these are only going to be two examples of this, and there are many examples of this, okay? But these are just two. The Pope is of so great dignity so exalted that he is not a mere man. He is, at, as it were, God on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, we the popes, this is from Pope Leo the, the 13th, hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Okay, so those are just two examples that I would think meets the, I would never claim any of those, would you? So that's arrogant, that's pride. Okay, so it meets that criteria. What about, pardon? He's a human being like we are. He's a human being like we are. Sinner, needing saved by grace, yes. Wars against the saints. First, these ten powers were used to war against the saints, but the Bible talks about a different type of war. It's a spiritual war. For though we live in the war, we don't wage wars. The world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. Notice this beastly power. Revelation 13 opened his mouth to blasphemy against God, uh, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle his dwelling place, his temple. Paul describes this same beastly power in 2 Thessalonians when he says that the, the, uh, the Lord will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. This is the same, blaspheming the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God, setting yourself up in God's temple. Paul's writing this around 60 A.D., so that's after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus has gone into heaven to rule. Paul says that, the, the, that sometime in the future, from 60 AD, this man of lawlessness is going to set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. 
Is he saying that this man of lawlessness is going to ride up into heaven, knock Jesus off his heavenly temple throne and reign up there? No. No. So then what temple are we talking about? The spirit temple. This is the same attack of the beastly system that blasphemes the tabernacle of God. But, But how does he do it? By replacing the truth of God with a false God. If we worship a false God, then we have another God in our spirit temple, don't we? But how can he get us to worship a false God? By changing how we view God's law from design law to imposed law. If you accept the idea that God's law works like human law, then God is presented as a dictator. He's the source of cosmic execution and punishment for sin. He must use his power to punish sin because if he doesn't, then there's no accountability and the law has no power. The world goes into an age of darkness. Evidence for this change. Which church committee ever voted that their members don't have to breathe or gravity won't work if they step off a bridge, they'll float? Which church committee? But wouldn't it be convenient, again, I've said this before, on bad pollution days in California, that if the Adventist church voted all their members are not required to breathe on bad pollution days? Wouldn't that be great for them? Wouldn't it? If it were. But why don't they do it? They have the power to make that vote in a, in a committee, don't they? But would it change reality? This is why they don't do it, because they recognize those laws they have no power over. So what would it mean if a church did vote to change God's law? Wouldn't it mean they don't see it as design law? They see it as rules that are subject to change? And the Roman church deleted the second commandment, split the tenth in two, and wrote the following about the fourth, making it the third because they deleted the second. The church, after change, the church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath of the seventh day of the week to the first, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the day to be kept holy as the Lord's day. This is actually not about Sabbath and Sunday. This is evidence of changing the entire way we conceive of God's law from design law to a system of rules that can be amended and changed. If they didn't think God's law was changeable, they would have never done this. This is the real change that even Adventists have never really fully embraced and understood. And so Romanism didn't merely change the commandment. It changed in the minds of men the very nature of the law itself, how we see it. God's law are the design laws, the protocols upon which reality functions. He builds space, time, energy, matter, life. And his laws are those laws upon which reality functions. We cannot do that. So we make up rules and we call them laws. But our rules require external punishment and enforcement. That's beastly. So notice what Romanism did. Romanism changed the concept of God's kingdom from a creatorship to an imperial dictatorship. That's what happened. And I've heard many Adventist pastors and others teach that the best form of government you can have is a benign dictatorship. Has anybody ever heard that before? Yeah. It's a lie. That's Romanism. What does that mean? A benign dictatorship? an imperial ruler who makes up rules and uses his power to punish. But because he has perfect judgment and he only punishes the actual wrongdoer, an innocent is never punished, only the wrongdoer is punished, but it's all arbitrarily inflicted by the one in charge because he makes up rules. That's a dictatorship. And if you break his rules, somebody has to pay. Somebody has to be punished. But he loved you so much that he sent his son and his son took your place and and all the sins of all the people were put on his son and God used God's power to punish his son in your place. And then even though his son did no wrong, his son got the punishment from his dad and his dad then declares if you accept the payment, then he will have his anger vented on the son and he won't have to hurt you. There's no human being with that kind of wisdom. 
Yeah, this is, this is what Romanism did. It infected the spirit temple with a false God construct. First church historian Eusebius wrote, with the Roman Empire monarchy had come on earth as the image of the monarchy in heaven. Think that through. How does Rome govern? Through love or through law and force? And that's how the first church historian saw Christianity and God's government. This is not a, a humanistic historian. This is the church historian. So, similar to Daniel's beasts. Old Testament beasts, Babylon and Persia took Jews captive. The beasts, this beast in the Dark Ages took saints captive and imprisoned them and all kinds of things that happened to them. Greece defiled the temple, as I described, and Romanism defiles the spirit temple by setting up a false imperial dictator god that is worshipped by both Roman Catholics and Protestant Christians alike. Dominates for 42 months. 42 months in scripture, these are Jewish months, they're always 30-day months, so 42 months times 30 equals 1,260 days. In Bible prophecy, a, there's a day-year principle. You can, there's the Bible text for that, Numbers 14.34 and Ezekiel 4.6. In pro- prophetic time, one day of the prophecy equals one year. So 1,260 days would equal 1,260 years. This power will dominate, if this is correct, for 1,260 years, but then re- appear to receive a deadly wound. In 538 AD, Belisarius, one of Emperor Justinian's generals, defeated the Goths. The Goths were ruling in Rome. They were part of the Germanic tribes that came down as the Roman Empire, Western Empire was falling, and and Justinian is ruling from Constantinople, which is now Istanbul in the Eastern Empire. And and some of these Germanic tribes have taken over and are ruling Rome. And in Rome, the the Goths were Arians. They did not believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ, and they had their own pope. Belisarius deposed, uh, de- defeated the, the Arian Goths and deposed the Arian Pope, installed a new one, giving him political and ruling power, and the Pope began to rule um, the Western Empire uh, in Rome in 538 AD. This is all historical. You can look it up in any, um, any encyclopedia. Now, if this fits the timeline, then 538 AD, when the Pope uh, got installed by um, Belisarius 1260 years later, 1798. We'd expect something of significance that would say the papal system s- suffered a wound that s- would appear to kill it. Well, in 1798, exactly 160 years later, Berthier, Napoleon's general, entered Rome, took the Pope captive where he died in exile three years later, and the political power of the papacy over the nation states of Rome were broken at that time. Dominates for 42 months. We see that. 1260 years, this power, uh, this, this, this beast had power over the nation states and the hearts of men and persecuted the saints. Healing of the wound. Is this, this, has this, this particular head had its wound healed. Well, in 1929, the Lateran Treaty reconstituted the papal state, giving it both religious and political power. It is not like any other church of the world. Your church has maybe not-for-profit status in a government, but this church is a political entity that has ambassadors with every state of the, of the world. And so it's, it's treated as a nation state. So did the Roman church, let's go, let's go over the qualifiers. Did the Roman church wield the 10 powers of the, the 10 horns? The 10 horn, yes, it did. Was, was it, did it act arrogantly? Has it, has it blasphemed? Has it warred against the saints? Is it similar to Daniel's beast? 
Did it dominate for 42 months? Did it receive a deadly wound that heals? So the wounded head of the beast is Roman papal Christianity. But the beast of Revelation 13.1 is not the wounded head. Get your mind around that. Historic Adventism will teach you that this beast is, papist, is the papacy. It is not. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound. It did not say the beast seemed to have a fatal wound. There are seven heads. Only one of the heads received a fatal wound. The whole world follows the beast, not the, the, the head that was wounded. So the beast versus the wounded head. Only one of the seven heads, not the entire beast. The wounded head does not represent the entire beast, but one of the false religious systems. The beast is the entire chameleon system worldwide of satanic forces manifesting throughout history that opposes God. That's what the whole beast represents, the whole worldwide system. The world follows the beast, not the wounded head. In the Dark Ages, we just, I think, made a very compelling case that it was the papal head directing the ten horde powers to persecute the saints in Europe. That's where it was happening. In communist lands, it's the godless head. In Iran, it's the Islamic head that's using the ten horde powers to persecute the saints and stop the gospel. In ancient African Americans, it's the pagan heads, so forth. During COVID, we saw the beast act globally. Did we not? A global action to restrict liberties and coerce consciences, but it was not led by the wounded head. Get your mind around that. The doctrines and practices of the beasts are the fruit of accepting the lie about God's law and therefore worshiping a God that is an imperial dictator. Do you worship a creator whose laws are design laws and who governs a creatorship? Or do you worship a dictator, a dictator God whose laws are imposed rules and who governs a dictatorship? So let's keep going. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth worship the beast. All those whose names have, been, have not been written in the book of life belong to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Following the beast. All but the saints follow the beast by embracing and practicing the methods of the beast via one of the seven false religions. You've been told your whole life it's via one religion if you're an Adventist. It's the ten, wielding the ten horn powers to coerce the conscience via any of the seven heads. You're, you're a beast follower. The atheist who believes in the fallen natural world alone, the survival of the fittest principle, embraces Satan's methods of power to advance and protect himself, coerce consciences, restrict liberties, and force compliance, worship Satan and the beastly system, even if they think they're not religious. Get your mind around that. The Puritans... During the Satan uh, Salem witch trials, they were beastly, burning people at the stake that they accused of being witches. European Protestants who burned Catholics at the stake, which happened, beastly. Muslims persecuting and killing infidels, beastly. Any person today who would use the methods of the beast upon others. That's it, guys. And we're right out of time. (laughs) And next week, on part two, we will do the second beast of Revelation, which is going to be more explosive than this one, with more new truths to unpack that you've never heard before, I promise you. If you were raising Adventist Church, what you hear next week is going to blow your mind. 
So now, um, more questions for today, and then we'll, we'll take a, uh, finish this class out with any questions about what I presented here today. And remember, this is rough. I've asked you all to give feedback this week on how to smooth it out and make it even better. Questions today, guys? Well, when they say that no human or anybody else could have saved sinful man, but the crucifixion of Christ, who made that decision? Reality. Who made the decision that it was necessary? Who made the decision to do it? Jesus made the decision to sacrifice himself. Reality made the decision that was necessary. God's design law for life. You cannot have life, a simple metaphor. Physically, you can't have life without breathing. If you tie a plastic bag over your head, you will die. Who made the decision that you had to have the, had to have the bag taken off your head in order to live? God, when he created the universe to operate on the law of respiration. Okay? And so once man sinned, he's out of harmony with the very functional reality of God's kingdom. He will die unless someone restores him to unity with God. There is no life separate from the life giver. And we could not fix that problem ourselves. So Christ became human. And there's some questions that will come up in our Q&A time that I think might address this as well. But any questions about this, this beast? Did you hear anything new today? Yes. Yeah. The material is amazing, and you presented it, I think, pretty well and pretty clearly, but it's really fast. Yes. Really? I have oh, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to go so slow, but thank you. I, I would recommend if you're going to do it in a, um, in a um, seminar. seminar, yeah, that's the word I was looking for, that you slow it down a little bit, because <laughs> I'm familiar with a lot of the stuff that you're talking about. If somebody is not... Yeah. Perceive it even Good. faster than I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I like it fast. You like it fast. <laughs> and and maybe along with slowing it down is to maybe include you've noted the scripture, but possibly reading and looking at the scripture to kind of solidify maybe sure yeah i thought about that it would make the program longer and i can tell you i'm trying to get this into a seminar if i get this into a summer next next sabbath um i was i was wanting to do revelation 13 the second beast and revelation 17 (laughs) i don't think we're going to be able to get both of those yes yeah you know understand what rachel's saying about about liking it fast um which is great for an overview. Yes. Um, and if you then go back and study it and fill in the pieces. Yeah. And, you know, I tend to do that kind of thing, but if somebody's going to come and they're just going to hear it the first time or only once. So the big theme, what was the big theme you all took away from today? The big pieces. The little pieces you may not know all the details on. But were there some big pieces that you can walk out of here with today that, that make sense to you? The war in heaven, Christ and Satan. Okay. The line of Messiah coming down the line, and it, it so the theme of Scripture is that keeping the focus on the on the conflict of Messiah coming. Okay, yeah. God's, God's system powers put in His horns. Okay, the did, okay, so so the seven horn powers. Yeah. Yeah. Now those were not a mystery. As I as I listed them, you all you recognize them, but they were put together before. So you like that? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and who has really defined why the Bible was written? We knew it was uh, of God. And from a spirit, but until you shared and explained through the Bible why and why the Chinese are not there and the American Indians are not yeah. mentioned, because it was 
the salvation and from Genesis 3.15, you needed to follow it through that. No one had ever shared that, yeah. and it makes so much That's more sense why we have this holy book and why it's so vital and important. And then you can carry that principle on through to the prophecies. Yes. Yeah. The things that after Christ, we stay focused on the gospel message. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God's system versus the beastly. So, so, so did the beastly system, uh, was I able, were you, are you able to walk away today with a clear understanding of some differences between God's system and the beastly system? Yes. 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 And the fact that the, the beast or the beastly system, the methods, the powers have always been. It was not designed to indict any specific religion or power, any specific denomination, any specific nation, which again is what we've been taught since childhood. It's to define throughout each and every one of them there is a beastly power manipulating those powers of, of government or of earthly kingdoms and like you said, it changes, it morphs into whatever works best in that. So, so can you see then there's a difference between the beast itself and the wounded head? Yeah. 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 Isn't that helpful? Yeah. 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 And the idea that God does not make the decision that judgment... judgment. Yeah, his, his form of judgment is diagnosis. diagnosis. When you think of God's judgment, think yeah. diagnosis. He diagnoses accurately, truthfully, what actually is. The overview of all the seven, the seven heads. Yeah. Yeah. The forty-two months we've grown up with. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we. Yeah. Uh, To me, the thing that I like so much, and um, uh, this is probably one area to go a little slower on, is that of the comparisons, the different numbers and the horns and so forth, sitting those in opposition to Christ versus Satan. Okay, all right, good. All right, let's close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for the, the truths that you've revealed, the way your kingdom runs, that you are the creator and you govern a creatorship and that you are not a dictator, Lord, and that we have nothing to fear from you. We only have to fear from the lies we believe about you. We ask that you will guide us uh, this week, uh, help us solidify these truths into our hearts and minds, and, and give this final message of mercy to the world to free people from participating in this global beastly system that's going to coerce consciences that's coming upon the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.